Have you found Matthew chapter 1? Okay. The Word of God begins here uh, in the New Testament in verse 1, and we're going to look at a couple verses, and we're going to skip a couple verses. So Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And then it says a lot more. And down at verse 17, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to love you and love your word. Add your blessing to the telling of your story so that we might honor you and you might be glorified. And it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When there had been nothing, no material with which to work, God spoke and by the power of his word called into being that which was not. God used no tools, no evolutionary process, no material from outside himself. God created everything out of nothing by his power and for the purpose of showing his glory. Ranking highest in God's creation was his creation of mankind. God created humanity in his image to uniquely uniquely show the universe the greatness, the glory of God. And when God formed humanity from the dust of the earth and breathed breathed life into the first man, it was good. When God brought the man a woman, a wife, a helper taken from his own flesh to work alongside him, that was, as God said, super good. But into the picture of what had been super good came a trickster, an enemy, an adversary. Into the garden slithered the devil himself. He tricked the woman, convincing her that God had lied to her and that she could become her own God if only she would eat the fruit that God had tried to withhold from her. Confused, deceived, tempted, the woman ate. Now, the man God had made, the husband of the woman, who should have protected his wife, He stood alongside his wife in the garden and he watched her disobey the command of God. He didn't try to stop her. And then to add insult to injury, the man, not deceived, not tricked in any way, chose willingly to defy the command of God. The man reached out, took the fruit, ate it, and plunged the world into chaos. God, at that point, rightly pronounced several judgments on the people for what they had done to rebel against him. Because of what the people had done, God said that the world that had been perfect would now be cursed. Where plants had grown easily, thorns and thistles would arise. Where there had been only comfort and joy, now physical pain was going to be present. Where there had been only marital openness and love and kindness, strife and competition would enter in. Where work had been pleasant, 
Sweat would pour and bruises and calluses would form. Where friendship with God had been easy, division and separation and confusion came. And where mankind would have lived forever in perfection, death entered the human existence. But God would not allow his glory to be stolen by the evil tricks of the devil. God would not allow the people that he loved to be destroyed by Satan's ploys. God would not have his story hijacked. In fact, God was not even surprised by what had just happened. God knew what the people would do before he ever made them. He created them with a plan for how he was going to rescue them in mind. So in the middle of pronouncing the curses against the people, the land, and the devil, God made a promise, a glorious promise. God told the devil in Genesis 3.15 that the woman's offspring, some child to come, descended from the woman in the garden, was going to crush the head of the devil. That that weird little promise in Genesis 3.15 is probably one of the first glimmers of hope for humanity. Then God made clothing for the people from the skins of animals. He even allowed the woman to have children, though none of her children were going to be the one who directly fulfilled the promise. But the children Eve had pointed out the fact that God was still in the story, that God would still do something, that the line had not ended, that the promise had not failed, that the plan had not been stopped in the garden. God was going to step in. God was going to rescue humanity. And as time moved forward, we learned that God continued to promise and promise and promise to send someone to rescue his people. Last week, as we looked at a promise of victory over the dark gloom that the people of God were facing, we saw that the one to come was going to be called God with us. We also saw that God promised that the one to come was going to be born of a virgin. The one to come was going to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. The one to come was going to be a king, the promised king who would rule over all the world, who would perfectly fulfill all of God's promises. And hope in someone coming like that is what gives people the courage to face the darkness that this life can bring. Now, just so you know, That's the summary of the last two weeks of preaching. And don't you think if we could do it that fast, we should have done it that fast then? Oh, come on, it wasn't that bad. Well, this is where we left off last week, but there's a lot more to the story of God. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time to tell the story. We're going to do our best to put it all together. And as we tell the story, we're going to follow the line of those names we see in Matthew chapter 1. Now, we're not going to mention all of the names that we see in Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to refrain from the temptation I had to sing all of those names to you. There is a song that does it. But how does the story come together? Well, let's go back. Adam and Eve were in the garden. God kicked them out, right? Remember? He put an angel in the garden with a flaming sword. The first lightsaber was right there. (laughs) True story. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Um, Oh, come on. So, Eve had two sons. This is good. The older murdered the younger out of his jealousy. This is bad. 
the darkness of the world got darker and darker. Later, Eve had more children, and God's promise was kept alive. Eventually, as the world was being filled with the descendants of Adam and Eve, God chose to judge the world. He was not going to allow the evil of humanity to continue to mock him and to defy his commands. But God was not willing to break his promise of a chosen one, a special one who was coming to crush the head of the devil. So God chose one man, Noah, and his family to be rescued. And when God flooded the earth, only eight people survived. God sort of started over. But God kept his promise alive, even if only by a thread Four men and four women. Eventually, the world was again populated by humanity. And humanity continued to do evil because that's what we're good at. And in Genesis chapter 11, God divided the people up into different nations. He confused their languages. He gave them different cultures. And that action kept any one person's ideas and and one person's influence from becoming so sinful and so central as to merit the punishment of God over the entire world. Pretty gracious of God, don't you think? And it was after God made humanity into many different nations that he called one man out from among the people to make a brand new nation, a brand new people group who would be God's special possession. And in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the nations of the earth, sorry, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that last line, that's a big deal. God said to Abram, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God was telling Abram, by the way, God was going to change his name to Abraham if it makes you feel any better, that in him and in his offspring was going to be the fulfillment of that promise God made in the garden to set everything right between mankind and himself. And so Abraham is the name that starts off the list of names we saw in Matthew chapter 1. Well, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel because God likes to do that. Israel had 12 sons, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And with each successive generation, God keeps repeating his promise. He chose a person from Abraham's family to carry God's pledge to bless the world, to defeat the devil. God's promised one hadn't come yet, but God kept vowing that he would come someday. God promised Isaac, Isaac, you carry the promise, not your brother Ishmael. God promised Jacob, Jacob, you carry the promise, not your brother Esau. Jacob, God used him in some of his last words we have recorded to tell him that the, tell the, the 12 brothers that the promise was going to come through the line of Judah. Which is kind of funny. He's the fourth born, but he carries the promise. How do we know? Genesis 49.10 The scepter shall not, part, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Those were the words of Israel not long before he died. So that promise to Judah not only indicates that the promised one is going to travel through Judah's line, but you know what else it says? It says he's going to have a scepter. 
He's going to be a king. There's going to be a king coming. He's going to crush Satan and he's going to rule like a king. Well, God moved that family of Israel, a little family of 70 people all told, down to Egypt. And they lived there for just over 400 years. And as an Old Testament professor of mine once said, it was like an incubator. The nation needed to grow. So God moved them away from the Canaanites and the Canaanite religion. He moved them down to Egypt. And then get this. When the Egyptians found out that they had livestock, the Egyptians thought they were icky. And so they got their own little land to grow up as a nation all by themselves. And during that time, the population of Israel exploded, becoming a nation of over two million. And then God led the people up out of Egypt by the power of his mighty hand. You all remember that whole parting of the Red Sea thing, right? And eventually, God settled them back into the promised land. He gave them, while they were traveling, his laws. He told them how to live in order to please him. Of course, none of the people ever lived up to that commands because we're good at not pleasing God. So God told them in the law how to make sacrifices of animals in order to show their faith in him and to seek his forgiveness for their sins. And it was bloody and it was messy and it was ugly, but it pointed the people of God to a coming day, to a coming time when the promised one from God was going to arrive and was going to rescue them from the curse of sin. In fact, can I let you in on a little secret? The reason God gave laws in the Old Testament was not because he thought the people were going to be able to obey them and earn his favor. God knew how wicked our hearts are. God gave the Old Testament laws to demonstrate to the people how badly they needed the one that he had been promising. The law shows us how much we need to be rescued, right? The law is kind of like a thermometer. A thermometer can tell you that you're sick, but it can't make you better. You can do anything you want with it. It won't make you well. Well, for several years couple hundred years, in fact, Israel lived in their own land. They didn't have a king. God just led them. That was kind of cool. But eventually the people rebelled against God and they demanded that they should have a human king to lead them. And the first king they had did not work out so well. But after he and his family were taken off the throne, God chose for Israel a king who was a man after God's own heart. God chose David to be the king. Well, between the times of Abraham and David which was around a thousand years, there was a promise still to be dealt with, wasn't there? What about that promise? Listen to what God said to David. This is in 2 Samuel seven sixteen. God said to David, your and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So so God tells David that he was establishing for David a house, a kingdom, a throne, and that throne was going to last forever. Just like God promised Judah that a king would come from his family to carry the promise. By the way, David was from Judah's family. And now we see that God is continuing his promise through the kingly line of David. And from the time of David, the kingdom went through all sorts of changes, right? Because Israel was one united nation under King David. But then it became a divided land. Two different countries. The northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom where David's line was became known as the kingdom of Judah. Pointing back to God's promise through Judah. Right? 
Then God sent prophets to the people of Judah to remind them of his promises and to call the people to start following God. What did the prophets say? Well, sometimes they said things like this in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. After David was reigning, or after David had died, in fact, years later, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Where? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Or how about Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34? God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of, uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Or how about this one from the prophet Micah in 5.2? But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, God kept promising the people of Judah that his promised one was going to come. I promise he's on his way. I promise he'll be a king, right? The the, the promised one is going to be a king from David's line. He's going to be called Mighty God. So we know that God himself is coming to earth to do this. He's going to bring a new kind of relationship between God and his people. Because we're not talking about laws you have to go and learn. It's going to be in you. God's spirit is going to be with you. That's different. He's going to be born in a tiny little town called Bethlehem. And eventually because of the rebellion of the people of Judah against God... God let Judah even be captured and carried away from their land. They were captured by the Babylonian Empire in the early 500s B.C. And while they lived in Babylon, the people of Judah, you know they got a nickname? People started calling them Jews, short for Judah. And God rescued the people of Judah out of Babylon. They'd been there for 70 years. But you know what? After they came back from Babylon, the nation never reached full strength. They were always under the thumb of one emperor or another. They were always under the rule of one kingdom or another. On a few occasions, there were kings, there were rulers, there were people who tried to destroy the Jews. It happened more than once. Someone tried to just wipe them out. But somehow God always protected them from this. No matter how small, no matter how harassed the Jews were, God never let them be destroyed. You know why? Why was Esther able to save the nation? Why why did God not let Antiochus Epiphanes wipe them out? 
Why did, I mean, you go on and on, right? God would not let his people be lost because God would not let his promise be lost. Never would God let his promise be lost. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you were a Jew living during the time of the Roman Empire. Your nation is under the control of a foreign government that you don't like. You want God to fulfill His promise. And make no mistake about it, if you lived then and you were a Jew, you would know every bit of the story I just told you. And suddenly you read the words of Matthew chapter 1 which say, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And you look down at the end of that section and you say, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Those words are very significant. Matthew calls Jesus the Christ. That's huge. The word Christ means chosen one, anointed one. In Hebrew, Messiah. Matthew is telling these guys, hey, listen to me, because I'm telling you the story of the promised one that God has been promising and promising and promising to send. He's the one who's going to defeat the devil. He's the one who's going to restore man's relationship to God. He's the one who's going to reign as king forever. This is whose story I'm telling. Matthew calls him the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why those two? Because Abraham is the one to whom God said, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed in Genesis 12.3. David is the one to whom God said, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in 2 Samuel 7.16. Matthew is telling us that the one to come, the one whose story he's about to tell you, he is the one who will fulfill all of God's promises. And then from verses 1 through verse 16, Matthew lists name after name after name after name. You read Matthew and you feel like the credits of the movie are rolling. He draws a straight line from Abraham, the founder of the nation, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through King David, right straight down to Jesus. And Matthew says to everyone who reads his book, this is the one who fulfills the promises of God. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham who will bless all nations. Jesus is the descendant of Judah who will be a king. Jesus is the descendant of David who will reign as king of the world forever. There's something nifty in verse 17. Depending on, you know, again, some people get really fascinated with with this, but it's kind of cool to know. We're reading some historical data. But God lets us know he's in control. He uses the number 14 there a couple of times. When you read Hebrew years ago, every letter had a number value. And the name David actually came up to 14 when you added its letters together. And it's like God saying, hey, just so you know, this is the promise to David, to David, to David. Everything about this shows that God's fingerprints are all over it and Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. 
And now you say, so what? Pastor, this is 2,000 years after that. So God brought this one into the world. How does that impact me right here, right now? Can I show you and have you turn to the book of Isaiah to show you one more prophecy that God made about the one to come? It's in Isaiah 53, by the way. So turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6. Remember, Isaiah is the one that told us a virgin was going to conceive and bear a son. Isaiah is the one who told us, hey, this is, this is going to bring the light of God in Galilee, which is where, Bethel, where, which is where Nazareth was, where Jesus grew up, did most of his ministry. Isaiah is the one who told us he's going to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, king over David's throne forever. Isaiah is talking about this guy. And then he says this in Isaiah 53, the same guy he's talking about here. Isaiah says, but he was, and this means it's so sure it's going to happen no matter what. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Please remember that the one to come had a mission that God told us in the garden in Genesis. This one to come would crush the head of the devil. This one to come would make things right once again between God and his people. And Jesus, the promised one, came to earth not only to be the king on David's throne. He came first to be the sacrifice for the sins of humanity. In the Old Covenant, people would, ta- would sacrifice animals in order to seek the forgiveness of God. But that was never really enough, guys. Now, did God really forgive people in the Old Testament? Yes, he did. But God did not forgive them because of the animal. God forgave them because of their faith in him, their obedience to what he commanded, their trust in that he would forgive them. Because it pointed to something greater. Jesus came to be the actual sacrifice for our sins. Who, if we believe in him, will give us perfect life forever with God. You might think to yourself, that sounds great. But would God forgive somebody as bad as me? you flip back to Matthew we'll go to John as well just so you know so there's two places we're going to go before we wrap up here this morning if you took a look at just a few of those characters in Matthew 1 1 through 17 if there were some names to underline to let you know that you could possibly be forgiven because you're going to see a list of really sinful folks in Matthew 1 who's the first name on the list Somebody who looks at Matthew chapter 1. Abraham, right? He's a good guy. Although two times during his life, Abraham got so scared of the people around him that he told his wife, hey, pretend you're not married to me and pretend you're available to any man who might want you so that nobody gets jealous of me on your behalf. There's not really much more marital abuse you could come up with in that, in that season than that. He was an evil man when it came to that. 
He was wrong. He was cowardly. He refused to trust God. Go down a little bit further and you see that uh, we have Judah having two kids, Perez and Zerah, through Tamar. Tamar actually had been married to Judah's son and then his other son. And then both those boys died. I don't know if it was something she cooked or what, but that's not true. I know exactly why they died. The Bible tells us they were wicked and God killed them. So Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law. That's how Judah ended up with those kids. But then you go further down the line, you see a lady's name named Rahab. She really was a prostitute. David conceived Solomon with Bathsheba. Of course, that was a woman that he ended up with after he had an illicit extramarital affair with her that resulted in David murdering her husband. And I don't even have time to talk to you about the wickedness of the kings that follow. And then we come down at the end of the line to Mary, teenage girl from a little hick town. That's all she was, guys. But she was faithful to God. She was willing to follow God. But she was a peasant girl. Yes, she was a faithful woman, but just a peasant girl from a little country town. What do we learn from that? Get this. God's grace reaches a lot further than you might think. If God would include the people I just named in the line of his promised one, he will also willingly make you a part of his family. God's willing to forgive. God's willing to save you. God's willing to give eternal life to someone like you. How do you get it? Last verses for this morning. It's in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And the reason I include these is because this is John writing, just kind of thinking about the Christ to come and telling a story, introducing the story. And here's what John says about Jesus. John 12, John 1, 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. want to be a child of God, you don't have to clean up. Now, God will clean you up eventually. It's going to change. Your life will change. But you don't have to be good enough to earn your way in. No. What's he say? He says, receive Jesus. What do you mean? Believe in his name. What do you mean? Believe that Jesus is that promised one of God, that God from the Garden of Eden all the way through the Old Testament kept saying, I promise He's coming, I promise He's coming, I promise He's coming. That's what the Old Testament is about. I promise and promise and promise I'm sending Him. He is God who came to earth. Jesus is God who came to earth and paid the price for the sins of every single person God would ever forgive. And if you will entrust your soul to Jesus, if you will put all your eggs in that basket and that basket alone if you will begin to live your life for Him, if you will truly believe in Jesus, God says you will be saved, you will be rescued, you will become a child of God. 
So if you're here by any chance and you haven't done that yet, I urge you, trust in Jesus and turn your life over to him. And he promises you life forever. If you need to know more about that, come talk to me afterwards, okay? And Christians, because that's what most of us here are doing on a church on a Sunday morning. We're 12 days away from the day that many people set aside to celebrate the coming of the Savior. So as you look to that celebration, please don't miss the glory of the whole story. Christmas didn't start in the manger. It started in eternity past before there was time. Christmas was in the plan of God before he made the world. Christmas was promised in the garden. Christmas was carried down through God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to David, and to so many others. And God kept his promise. After thousands of years of human history, God sent his son to be our savior. And so let's praise God for his grace this Christmas. And let's help others to understand the amazing faithfulness of our very great, very gracious God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, again we just say you are so good. You have been kind, you have been merciful, and you have kept your promises. And you will keep your promises. So, Lord, keep it up. Let us know you. Let us know your promises. Let us trust you. Let us trust your promises. Help us to worship you rightly. We trust you. Change our lives for your glory. And, Lord, if there really is anybody here who doesn't yet know you, Show them how faithful you've been and draw them to yourself. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.